Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Okay, good morning. So as I, as I step into the pulpit here this morning, I, I just can't help but think about uh, how many times Ernest Martin would have stood here in the same spot and preached and how many times that he, over his long life as a minister, as a member of Midway, uh, opened up God's word to you. Um, and I'm just... Uh, uh, just recognizing what uh, what big shoes this is to fill to stand uh, in this pulpit, particularly in terms of biblical knowledge, but what also good shoes to step into. Uh, Ernest was someone who clearly had a passion for God's word, but he also more importantly had a passion and love for God. And one of the things that Ernest stressed to me numerous times was his gratitude that the Lord had used him as a servant of, uh, as of Christ in the church I think in a day and age where so much we want to put the attention on ourselves and our preaching and our ministry uh, in the individual, Ernest was always uh, giving credit to the Lord. So I just want to uh, begin um, this just, just by recognizing Ernest's death, death last Friday 
uh, for giving, giving thanks for earnest life to God uh, and all he's meant to us at Midway. As Sherry mentioned, this is the first Sunday in Lent. This is that time of year in the church calendar that we, we stop, and also uh, uh, Melody said, we stop and we reflect on the death of Jesus. We prepare ourselves for Easter. And we do that in many ways by looking at the cross. And we're going to be, uh, this entire uh, period of Lent, we're going to be in these last couple chapters of Mark's Gospel, where we've been for almost a year now. And we're going to hone in on these last couple days on earth uh, as Jesus goes to the cross. But Lent is also a time to look at ourselves, as has been mentioned this morning, to, to examine our own selves, to examine our need for, uh, for forgiveness, the times we've fallen short. And it's also, as, as Sherry mentioned, it's a time we give up something. It's a time of self-denial. Uh, it's a time sometimes many of us fast. We would we'll pick out something that we enjoy to give up, which sounds a bit dour, doesn't it? I mean, I think it, Lent often can sound a bit dour, even on a normal year. But I think uh, after this last year, it seems like if we should ever get a get out of Lent card, this is the one. If you remember, actually, this pandemic started very soon, I mean, in earnest, right after uh, Ash Wednesday. And in many ways, it feels like Lent has never stopped. That uh, if you were with us last Ash Wednesday, those marks of ashes that were put on our foreheads, it feels like they were never washed off. It has been one long year of giving up things we love and being reminded of our mortality. But I think this passage is a great reminder to us that we, we need Lent. Even this year, we need Lent. There's been a lot to mourn this year. We've spent a lot of time watching and seeing what's wrong with the world this year. We've seen a virus now, last I checked, that has claimed almost a half a million American lives. We saw last summer and throughout the year uh, uh, an awakening and a reckoning in our country with the reality of racial injustice. We saw a presidential election and uh, subsequently the days after the presidential election bring our country almost to a breaking point, it felt. And the reality is we've seen in this world, there is a lot wrong, right? And Lent is that time that reminds us there's not just a problem out there, there's a problem inside. There's a problem with me. There's a problem with each of us. And our passage today centers around what is known as the Last Supper. Jesus' disciples would have known it not as the Last Supper. They would have known it as Passover. We talked a bit about this a couple weeks ago. Passover was that time of year, that festival, that marked and celebrated the Israelites freeing of captivity from the Egyptians when they were freed from slavery. And it was that it's the most it was that most central of events for the Israelites. It was a it was a festive occasion. It was a family celebration. It was a, a time that they would sing songs from their hymn book, the Psalter, particularly uh, one thirteen through one eighteen in our book of Psalms. And they would eat and they would drink and there would be actually like I think four cups of wine that'd be passed around. This meal would stretch out from the evening all the way up close to midnight. And if you look at verse 18, if you have your Bible open, I invite you to open it up. You'll see that the, that the uh, disciples are reclining. 
So they would have had, uh, they would have been lying down. They would have had the left elbow kind of on the, uh, perched out. And then they would have had the right hand to grab food from the table. It sounds to me like a rather inconvenient way of eating, but for them, it was a, it was a sign they were free. See, only people who were free had the luxury of eating and reclining. And remember, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Passover is freedom time. Passover is that time you, you, they both celebrated the freedom that they had from the captivity of the Egyptians, but it's also the time they longed for freedom now. And at one point during the Passover meal, I want you to just see this. Remember, Passover is all in the background. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago, but you've got to really see it here. Passover is in the background. They're at this Passover meal, and, and what would happen is a child would at some point in the meal turn to the host, turn to the head of the household, and ask this question. What does this mean? What does this mean? What, what is, uh, what's different about this night than every other night? And that question would then prompt the host, the head of the household, to tell the story again, to tell the story about how long ago our ancestors were in captivity in Egypt, how God's judgment came down on the Egyptians, but that death actually passed over our homes, their homes. That, there, uh, we, that, that evening, our ancestors had, had sacrificed a lamb, and, and they had taken the blood of that lamb, and they had smeared it on the doorpost. And in a sense, they had then taken shelter in the house, taken shelter by the protection of the lamb's blood. And it wasn't just a story that the host would tell. You can see that they're, they're experiencing this. They, they, for example, didn't just talk about a lamb. They would eat roasted lamb that had been killed earlier that afternoon. They didn't just talk about how uh, when they fled the Egyptians, they were in such a hurry, such a haste, that the bread didn't even have time to rise. And that's why they eat unleavened bread. They didn't just tell that story. They ate unleavened bread. They broke unleavened bread. In other words, they, they didn't just recall the event. They, they reenacted it. And by reenacting it, they would, they would drive this in deeper and deeper, the meaning of this most important event in Jewish history. Last weekend, I was out with my family in Baltimore. We were with my sister and her family. And the Sullivans uh, have this family tradition that they make tamales every year. If you don't know what tamales are here in Northeast Ohio, they're uh, oftentimes you think about Mexican food, but they're made uh, out of corn masa, this kind of corn dough. And then you, you take various meats and, and other vegetables or cheese and you put it in the, the masa and then you wrap it up in this corn husk and you steam it. And they are delicious. And so our family got to join the Sullivan family in this uh, annual tradition. And it's a big ordeal. Their kids are brought in and they, they invite uh, friends over to do it when they all split the tamales. And it begins days before we got there. My brother-in-law smokes a brisket and he smokes chickens on his smoker and he buys corn husk and he buys masa and he buys all the other supplies. And we took a whole day just wrapping these tamales. And one day my two young nephews who are just little boys right now, one day, uh, their parents will be gone and they, they could tell the story about how the Sullivans always make tamales, right? That, that would bring back some memories. But they could do something else. They could reenact the making of tamales. They could, they could start smoking brisket like their dad did. And they could smell that, that smoke, that wonderful flavor off the, off the smoker. 
And they could, they could put masa down on the tamale like their mom taught them and they could, they could fold it down. They could feel what masa feels like in their hands and they could taste a homemade tamale that came right out of the pot. In other words, they could tell the story or they could reenact the story. They could re-experience it. They could remember it. They can remember that Sullivan's always make tamales. And Peter and James and John and all these guys, they've, they've been eating Passover since they were little boys. They've been doing this tradition and they've been telling these stories and they've been, they know the routines. They know the smells of Passover. They know the, the taste of Passover. It's been worked into them year after year after year. And it was into this, this festive environment that all of a sudden, dropped these piercing and chilling words by the rabbi Jesus. Words that they surely had never heard spoken before at Passover. Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Imagine what a, what a shock this must have been. Jesus, the rabbi, this, this, this man that they had devoted their life to these last three years, followed him around. He says, someone in this room is going to betray me. We typically, art and various just interpretation of the scene, typically in our mind, we only see 12 people around this table with Jesus. Most likely there was more in this larger room. We know that Passover was celebrated with family and children. We also are told in chapter 15 that many women had come down from Galilee uh, to Jerusalem. So it's very likely that there's other people outside of this table. But Jesus narrows in the circle, right? So there's these various suspects, but he's going to hone in. And now it's just the 12. Now it's just the, the closest confidants of Jesus that are suspects. But notice how, notice how ambiguous Jesus is. This is something that always, I think, has struck me as a little bit odd. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't come out, out and say, someone's going to betray me, and it's Judas, Right? What's he do? He, he leaves things very ambiguous. Someone's going to betray me. And he seems to be doing, what he seems to be doing is provoking the disciples to self-examination. He seems to be pushing their gaze inward. He wants them to look at themselves. He, he wants them to, to take a moment and examine their own hearts and to ask the question, would I be capable of such a thing? Could it be me? And one by one, we read in the text, they say, surely not I, surely not I. So they do, they do the self-examination and every one of them comes out with flying marks. If there's a problem, in other words, the problem is out there. The problem is not in here. It's with someone else. But Jesus sees things differently, right? He's named that someone will betray him. But right after the Last Supper, he, we hear that Jesus says, all of them will fade away. All of them will fall away. All. So, so yes, Jesus will be betrayed by one disciple, but he's very clear that there'll be total defection by the disciples. All will follow. All will ultimately be disloyal to them. And then after he does this, Peter says, of course, Peter does. We've, we've kind of gotten to know Peter. No way. No way. Not me. I don't know about these other guys. I, I can't vouch for them, but I will never disown you. I am with you to the very end. I, if I have to be cut down in a heroic last stand, so be it. Now, Peter's bluster. And Jesus interrupts the bluster. And he says, Peter, I'm telling you, it's today, tonight, you're going to disown me. And Peter just 
He just doubles down. Never going to happen. And all the other ones say the same. So it's not, it's not terribly difficult to pledge our allegiance or their allegiance to Jesus uh, at this moment. It's not, it, it's not entirely difficult to put on lots of bravado and bluster and theatrics like Peter and say, I will never disown you. See, just a few days before, the, Jesus had entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. And yes, he had made these allusions to him dying. But every time the disciples kind of bat him away or ignore him or refute him. Hopes are still high. But what about when things fall apart? What about when things go wrong? What then? See, things are about to go very, very wrong in our story. Jesus is about to be arrested in a garden. And what happens when everything begins to hit the fan? What happens? Total desertion, just like Jesus said. See, all, all will swear their allegiance to Jesus and all will ultimately desert him. See, see, hardship, not just for the disciples, for us too, has this way of clarifying things. It has a way of laying things bare. Hardship and disappointment in many ways does so much better job of examining us and our hearts and our motives and our commitments than we are on our own. See, we look at our hearts and we typically say, surely not I. Surely not I. But hardship has a way of calling our bluffs. Hardship has a way of exposing us, of, of laying bare our motives. See, see, for the disciples and for us, sticking close to Jesus when things look good isn't that hard. It's when life goes sideways. That's the clarifying moment. What is our commitment to Jesus? Because that's the point where, and I think most of us probably have felt this way, where you say, well, what is the point? What's the point for the disciples of following after Jesus if this ends at a cross? What's the point of me following after Jesus if the thing I have hopes in and my needs are not realized or being served? I think one of the, the best ways I have understood this is through marriage. In some ways, think about it. In some ways, there's a lot of bluster at a wedding. There's a lot of big promises made at a wedding. You, you, you talk about, uh, I'm with you through the thick and thin. I'm with you through better and worse, for worse. I'm with you in sickness and health. I'm with you, death do us part. I will never disown you. And that's not bad. Those promises are necessary and good. Those promises to be made in front of a community of people are good and necessary, but they're untested, right? Almost all the time they're untested, right? When, you, when you're up there at the altar making this pledge, there's oxytocin and dopamine and all these other great chemicals that are firing off in your body. And man, love feels so good. You know, maybe, maybe your, your spouse has some quirky habits and aren't they just endearing? In other words, for most of us, marriage isn't that hard at that point. It's when things get tough that there's a clarifying effect. After my own marriage, after five years, uh, Christian and I hit a pretty rough patch where neither of us was happy either with our marriage or with each other. And hardship and pain and disappointment came into our marriage, as it does most marriages at some point. And I remember in that moment getting a much more accurate look of myself. And it wasn't pretty because it was selfish. 
See, the, as long as the blessings of the marriage were coming, as long as my needs in the marriage were being met, I was a great husband. It's, it's when the hardship came. It's when I went through a season where I didn't feel like my needs were being met. That's when I got the honest assessment of myself as a spouse, not on the altar, in the moment of hardship. Realizing that my love was a lot about having my needs met and not about serving my spouse. The same thing happens with our relationship with Jesus. As long as the blessings are coming, as long as I'm, I'm hanging with Jesus and life is getting better and better, I am good, but I'm untested. It's when the hardship comes that I begin to ask the question, well, what good is this? That's the clarifying moment. That's when you get a much more accurate self-examination of yourself and your relationship to Jesus. And you begin to figure out at the end of the day, am I serving Jesus or is Jesus there to serve me? Because remember James and John, remember James and John from a few weeks ago? They want to be in Jesus' glory. They want to be on the left and they want to be on the right. They want to share in his glory. But when it comes down to it, when the, when the path actually goes to a cross, where are James and John? They're gone. It's total defection. And Jesus knows this, right? This is, this is what's so fascinating. So this last supper is happening and all this betrayal and defection is happening all around it. This is just swirling in the atmosphere. There's impending betrayal and defection. And that's when Jesus takes the Passover bread in his hands. You think about it, the disciples are still reeling from this shocking announcement that one of them is going to betray Jesus. But Jesus is going to do something very surprising here. Jesus is the host, right? We read earlier in the passage, the disciples say, this is your Passover, okay? This is Jesus is the host. This is his Passover. That means when the child asks the question, what does this mean? Jesus gets to explain what it means. And what Jesus, as a good Jewish man, should say is that this unleavened bread in my hands, this symbolizes, this reminds us when God freed us from captivity in Egypt. And remember, it happened so fast to our people that they, that they had to leave in such haste that they didn't even have time to let the bread rise. But he doesn't do that, does he? He, he doesn't link the bread back to the Exodus like he's supposed to as the host. What does he do? He says, this bread, this, this is my body. Me, when he says body, he means this is me. This is my life. He's not saying this is literally my physical body. Think about when you have a, a picture and you're showing your friends the picture and you say, that's me. Well, is that you? Is that ink on that picture you? Well, yes and no. Jesus is saying, this is me. This is me. This is my life. This is my body. And then he breaks it. And Jesus said, this breaking, this is giving you an image of what's going to happen to my body. It's going to be broken. So, so notice how Jesus, he's reinterpreting this meal. He's changing the links. That bread is supposed to link back to the Exodus, but now the bread links back to Jesus. From now on, that unleavened bread is not going to be linked to the Exodus. It's going to be linked to Jesus and his death. After that, he takes the cup of wine. And he says, this is the blood of, my, of the covenant which is poured out for many. So again, another traditional Passover element, the wine. But Jesus takes that wine and he gives it new meaning. He reinterprets it. That, that, that wine and that blood is a reminder of the blood of the lamb that was smeared on the doorpost. 
that, that the people took shelter under uh, when God's judgment came upon the Egyptians. But Jesus holds up that cup. He holds up that wine. He holds up and he says, this is something different. This now represents my blood. And if you notice, it's interesting. There's, there's a lot of the elements of Passover here. There's people, there's festivities, there's songs, there's food, there's bread, there's wine, but there's no lamb, is there? There's no lamb. And Paul will make this much more explicit in 1 Corinthians when he says, Christ is our Passover lamb. Or in John's gospel, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he will say, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says that this blood is the, new, the blood of the covenant. So the covenant is a, is a sacred agreement. It's a, it's a way that God binds God's self with humanity in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, the, the tradition was that covenants were sealed with blood, typically. So, for example, uh, in Exodus, we read, after Moses leads the, uh, the Israelites out of captivity, he brings them to Mount Sinai, he receives the law on the mountain, and he, he comes, and, he, and then the covenant is ratified. The covenant is inaugurated by, uh, by Moses taking blood from animals and, and taking it, and he flings it on the people. It's, a really, it's kind of an odd thing. I mean, you can imagine just kind of having blood flung on you. It sounds very odd. But it was a way that they inaugurated this new people, this new relationship between God and the people that he had rescued from Egypt. And it, and it meant now that these people, these Israelites who were gathered around Mount Sinai, were now God's own people. And so Jesus, again, he's taking this very, this very, uh, this very, this, this wine, this cup, and he's saying, this has new meaning. This is my blood. And this is inaugurating a new covenant, a new agreement, a new relationship. See, so, so God is creating a new people. God is binding himself to, to humanity in a new way. And then he says, it's poured out. So this language of, of pouring out is an allusion to the sacrificial animals. This after an animal in the Old Testament was sacrificed, its blood would be poured out on an altar. And in the Hebrew understanding, the blood is the life. So when it's the blood, it's the life of the animal. And the reason why this was done in the Old Testament is because the blood acted as an offering to God as an atonement for their sin. In other words, the, the animal was poured out on the altar for the benefit of the people. And through this cup, Jesus is telling his disciples my death on the cross, this blood that's going to be shed on the cross, it's going to be poured out. This is a new sacrifice. This is what we will come to understand as Christians as the ultimate, the final sacrifice. So just as your, your ancestors uh, were, uh, uh, took shelter under the, lamb of the blood, uh, of the, under the blood of the lamb in that house, that's going to happen again. You're going to shelter again, but this time it's under my blood. Not, not the blood of an animal, but my blood. So <laughs> let's just stop here for a second, because I think here, here we've got these two small little actions Jesus does. He takes bread and he takes wine, and it just like infuses them with a massive amount of meaning. It's hard to get our minds around everything that's happening. It's, you know... Um, you know, remember, Jesus says, he's, he's probably asked the question, what does this mean? And we, we're just kind of flooded with all this. And, and the disciples are probably, I'm sure they didn't understand what Jesus was saying, right? There's so much theological significance behind these words. The disciples probably had no idea what Jesus is saying. 2,000 years later, I think, even though those of us in the church who have been in our lives, we think we know 
what's being said. We so often don't. You know, you just dig, dig down a few layers and see if you understand what's happening here. I think one of the things that helps is to have children because children ask questions just like at Passover. And, and not too long ago, we were talking about Jesus' death and, and you know, like one of my kids was asking, why? What does this mean? And you can kind of say some answers that have been trained into you, like Jesus died for my sins and so on. But, but why? Why did Jesus have to die for your sins? Why? Why is that necessary? And if you just keep pushing the why questions, you're going to find it's a little harder to explain Jesus' death than maybe you thought. We're just talking about part of the reason for Jesus' death, a very important part. So one of the things we're trying to do during Lent, the reason why we're taking so long on these last two chapters of Mark is because we want to try to wrestle with this question. What does this mean? Why did Jesus have to die? You know, we got a, we got a glimpse of that back in chapter 10 when, when Jesus told his disciples that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. But now, now we're starting to unpack that more. And I think one of the really important things we learn here is that this was not, Jesus' death was not a stroke of fate. Okay? So, so sometimes Jesus' death, I think, is portrayed as this very unfortunate event that happened at the, uh, because of things he said. And it was a fortunate event, but it, it didn't, it happened, it wasn't just a stroke of fate. So Jesus very clearly lays out in your last supper, this was part of his vocation. This was part of the reason why he came. That, that his death had a purpose in God's plan. I think that's important for us to recognize. Jesus is very intentional about this. Secondly, we see that Jesus' death is a benefit for others. So think about it. Why doesn't Jesus, this is a lot. Jesus is throwing a lot at his disciples. I'm probably throwing a lot at you right now. Why doesn't Jesus do this as a lecture or a sermon like I'm doing right now? Why, why a meal? Right? Why doesn't he pull them aside on his way to Jerusalem and say, I'm going I'm to give you, I'm going to tell you why I'm going to have to die. Let's take out your notepads and take some notes and then you'll know. No, he, he waits until a meal to tell them about the meaning. Well, think about it. you. You can have a, a feast on a table, right? This table right in front of me. That can be chock full of food, right? And I can be starving. And I can have everything I need right there. But that food does me no good unless I ingest it. I can, I, can, I can literally starve looking at this food. And Jesus is saying the only way this is going to benefit you is if you take it in. That's how it's going to nourish you. It, this is not just an object lesson that Jesus is going to set aside. He's going to give them the bread and wine, and he's going to say, take it for your benefit. I think what is so crazy about this that we often miss is who's Who's sitting around the table with Jesus? Defectors, a betrayer, unfaithful disciples who will soon abandon Jesus, which is good news. It's good news because it means the Lord's table is not a table of merit, but a table of grace. Who does Jesus lay his life down for? Who's, who's the table for? Is it for the worthy? Is it for those who have it all together? No, it's a, it's a table for those who are prone to cowardice. It's a table for those who have failed, and not just failed, but have failed spectacularly, like the disciples. 
Which sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? Lent gives us an opportunity to move away from the self-delusion that the disciples have that moment and that we have to. Surely not I. No, not me. Surely not I. I could never betray my Lord. Surely if everybody else fell and abandoned Jesus, I would be there. And see, what, what, what Lent does is it moves you from surely not I to where Peter is going to be here in just a few hours weeping and broken down in the, in the, in, around the fire after he has betrayed, after he's disowned Jesus. And the only way you're going to do, the only way you're going to be able to get to surely not I, to Peter's recognition of his own brokenness, is if you realize this is a table of mercy. If you realize that this is a table of defectors and cowards and disciples who fail spectacularly, if you don't realize that, you're not going to be able to do the work to get from surely not I to weeping. Because amidst all that, amidst all the betrayal and defection that's happening around Jesus, Jesus is still giving them the food. He's still giving them the drink they need. And he's saying, this is for, this is for you. This is a table of mercy, not a table of merit. One final point. All throughout this passage, we, if you notice, there's this pattern that we see. Jesus predicts something, and then it happens. So there's this kind of like strange scene at the beginning where Jesus says, you're going to go to the Jew disciples, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to see a guy, and this would be unusual, a guy's going to be carrying a jar of water. And he's going to lead you to a room. Sure enough, it happens exactly like Jesus says, okay? And Jesus uh, says, one of you are going to betray me. And it happens. And then Jesus predicts that his body and his, his body is going to be broken and his blood is going to be poured out like wine. And it happens. And Jesus predicts that the disciples will abandon him and that Peter will, will deny him three times. And it happens. And these are dark and Pretty sober predictions, right? But we see, we, we can look back and see, yes, they all happen. But there's one more prediction that's easy to miss. Jesus says in verse 25, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is using this powerful uh, mess, image of a messianic banquet, of this, this, this age to come, this great feast when there's food and drink for all. And Jesus says, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. And that means that this story doesn't end at the cross. See, this sounds dark, right? These predictions sound dark. The death sounds dark. But Jesus is saying, it looks like my mission is going to end in humiliation and shame and failure. But that's not the end of the story. Because I'm telling you now, God is going to vindicate me. Just like every other prediction I have made, this one's going to be fulfilled too. We don't see this in Mark's language. Matthew says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. With you. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, I'm going to drink this with you. Meaning it's not just going to be me that gets there. You're going to get to the other side too. See, all will be unfaithful, all of you. You will all fall away, but not me. I will be faithful to the Father and to death. And because of that, 
the Father's going to vindicate me. You once took shelter from death under the blood of the Lamb. You will again take shelter under the blood of the Lamb, but it'll be my blood. You were once led out of captivity and slavery by Moses. I'm going to lead you out of a new slave, out of slavery and captivity again, this time from death and sin and evil. God made a covenant with you at Mount Sinai and sealed it with the blood of the covenant. There's a new covenant being made. This time it's sealed with my blood. Moses led you to the promised land. I'm leading you to a new promised land. Except Moses couldn't get there, could he? Do you remember? Moses can get him out of slavery and he can get him all the way to the edge of the promised land, but he can't take him there, can he? Guess what? Someone greater than Moses is here. And Jesus says, I'm that guy that's going to get you to the other side. I'm the one that's going to get you to the promised land. I'm going to get you the messianic banquet and I'm taking those with me who place their trust in me. That's why when we lose a brother like Ernest, we mourn. We do not mourn as those without hope because we know one has gone before us through death and come out the other side. That's why when life doesn't go our way as it so often doesn't, as we hoped it would, when pain and heartache and disappointment come, and life doesn't make sense as it often doesn't, we hold fast to Jesus because our trust is that he is going to lead us and take us to a place where there is no pain and there is no heartache no more. And that's why we can do the hard work of self-examination. Rather than saying, surely not I, we can say, surely it is I who has betrayed our Lord. Because we believe and profess that getting to the other side ultimately doesn't depend on us, but on the one we place our trust and faith 